The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Betting on BCMA in Multiple Myeloma, Oncology Nurse Principles for Delivering Effective Care with BCMA Antibodies and Cellular Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash SJV 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome. I'm so thrilled that you all are here and enjoying dessert with us. We're going to be discussing BCMA therapies tonight called Betting on BCMA and Multiple Myeloma, Oncology Nurse Principles for Delivering Effective Care with BCMA Antibodies and Cellular Therapy. So I'm joined today with my panelists, Donna Catamaro from Mount Sinai and Tiffany Richards from MD Anderson in Texas. (laughs) So let's just dive into an introduction, the journey to better myeloma care and the role of BCMA therapy in modern management. So most of you here in this room attended the symposium because you probably have some basic understanding of what multiple myeloma is. But just to set the stage, I wanted to give a very, very brief overview. So multiple myeloma is a cancer of the bone marrow plasma cells. Plasma cells are responsible for providing immunity. They secrete proteins that protect us against all kinds of inflammation, infections, and other things. Unfortunately, those plasma cells are aberrant through a series of genetic changes and alteration. Those cells turn malignant. Now, not everybody with an abnormal protein in their blood or urine does have a diagnosis of multiple myeloma. So there's a continuum, right? So we do tests like a CBC, chemistry panel, serum and urine immunofixation in order to determine if a patient has one of these conditions. So the first is MGUS, monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance. Those individuals harbor a low percentage of bone marrow plasma cells, a low M protein in their blood or urine, and they have a very low risk of progressing the active myeloma, less than 1% per year over 40 years. The second level is smoldering myeloma. So those individuals have a little higher percentage of bone marrow plasma cells, greater than 10%, but they still do not have any characteristics or they're not symptomatic from their disease. If they have a high protein and they're feeling back or bone pain, we have to rule out myeloma, but they might not indeed have myeloma actually at all. What we want to tease out are those high-risk smoldering myeloma patients. So the smoldering patients still might never need treatment, but those high-risk smoldering patients with an M-spike greater of 2 of per decaliter, a serum-free light chain ratio of kappa to lambda greater than 20, and a bone marrow clonal plasma cell percentage of greater than 20%. So that 22-20 is our new scoring system to say, hey, gosh, these patients are at a higher risk for needing treatment in the next few years. Let's offer them a well-designed clinical trial. And so there's ongoing clinical trials to identify what the best therapy, what the best approach, curative or non-curative, those patients might need. So if you're a nurse that's working in the hospital community or wherever, be aware that clinical trials are the pathway to learning more about how we do what we do and refer your patients to clinicaltrials.gov or Health Tree Foundation or some of the other resources we have available. Now, the ultra-high-risk smoldering myeloma are the ones that you might dive in and start treating earlier, but again, in the context of clinical trials, what catapults the individual into requiring treatment is crab, or slim crab actually these days, hypercalcemia, renal insufficiency, anemia, bone disease. If patients have those characteristics, emergent treatment is recommended. We also want to recommend treatment though if they have greater than 60% bone marrow plasma cells, if they have a higher free light chain rate 
ratio of greater than 100, which is now under a debate, right? <laughs> that there's some discussion that maybe we don't want to treat patients with that free light chain ratio, but that's for another t- discussion, another day, another time. Um, or if they have a, an MRI with greater than one lesion greater than five millimeters. So as I mentioned before, it's uh, mixing and matching. And as I learned years ago, it's like a puzzle. We got to put all the pieces together, just like with any cancer or tumor type. So you have laboratory testing that looks at the CBC, chemistry panel, quantitative immunoglobulins, serum and urine protein electrophoresis. We look at the serum kappa and lambda free light chain ratio and a monoclonal protein analysis. Then, like with any tumor type, we need a tissue biopsy. So you have your immunohistochemical staining, flow cytometry, cytogenetics, and clonal bone marrow plasma cell percentage. So we get so much information from that bone marrow biopsy. Fish is super important in any hemolignancy and especially in multiple myeloma. We can categorize patients into high-risk myeloma or standard risk myeloma, which fortunately most patients are standard risk. But those high-risk clones require a more aggressive approach, particularly deletion of 17P, gain or amplification of chromosome 1Q, and then we have our 414 translocation, 1416, and 1420. So if you have one or two or three, it's double hit, triple hit myeloma, and we have to be very aggressive in using these innovative new therapies, in my opinion. And then finally, radiologic imaging. Gold standard used to be a whole body x-ray, but you miss about 25 to 35% of lytic lesions according to recent International Myeloma Working Group recommendations. So we want to use either a whole body low-dose CAT scan to really look for osteolytic lesions greater than 5 millimeters in any area of the body, but not every institution has that technology available. So a PET scan, according to the IMWG, is perfectly adequate. And that uses the nuclear FDG scan to uptake and look for SUV standard units of velocity or areas of hypermetabolic activity. We oftentimes will get an MRI of the whole spine, cervical, thoracic, lumbar, and pelvis, and sacrum you have to include. And that's like 300 minutes in the machine. So be aware of that as a nurse if your patient has a whole spine MRI ordered. But we've actually diagnosed patients on that whole spine MRI where PET scan missed or whole body CTs missed. So if you're really trying to tease out those patients with myeloma, that is, in my opinion, an essential test. And then finally, the echocardiogram, especially if we worry about patients with cardiac amyloidosis or going to be embarking on cytotoxic chemotherapy or some of our newer therapies, a baseline echocardiogram is important. Now, the next few slides will highlight the nursing considerations when you're taking care of patients with multiple myeloma. So myeloma is a blood cancer, and the side effects of the disease and the treatment can impact each body system. So when I see patients in clinic, and Donna and Tiffany, we try to look at each body system, and at the end of each of my clinical notes, I address each of these. So for number one, bone health. We know patients are at risk for bone disease, and so we want to make sure that every Every patient with multiple myeloma, whether they have bone lesions or not, according to the International Myeloma Working Group, should be on a bone strengthening agent. I also will take care of their vitamin D and calcium, and I know sometimes we discuss, should that be the primary care provider, or should it be the treating oncologist or hematologist or APP? And in our, my opinion is that the drugs that we give, like the pomidronate or the zoledronic acid or the denosumab, those three drugs we can give for bone disease can actually cause hypocalcemia and low vitamin D levels. And so we want to make sure that 
patients are optimized for bone health. Infectious disease, we're going to talk a lot about infectious disease later on, right? But infectious disease is the number one killer of myeloma, in my opinion. Unfortunately, after all these years, it's still a major reason why people shouldn't succumb to their illness. Not the cancer itself, it's the infectious complications. So it's critical for nurses caring for myeloma patients to understand what therapies they're on and For example, if they're on monoclonal antibodies, they should all receive herpes viral prophylaxis. If they have IgG levels of less than 400, are they a candidate for IVIG therapy? Dr. Nipur Raj was the lead author in 2022 of International Myeloma Working Group Infection Guidelines last year, and it highlights low-risk regimens such as lenalidomide and dexamethasone. So you might not need as much antibiotic or antiviral protection, but then if you have a higher-risk regimen, such as daratumumab or bispecific antibodies or CAR T-cell therapy, then immunizations and other interventions are required. In terms of gastrointestinal toxicities, assess for diarrhea, especially if patients are receiving bortezomib or long-term lenalidomide. Cholestyramine is a great drug that we recommend for patients with lenalidomide-induced diarrhea or functional diarrhea. And I oftentimes recommend colonoscopies in That should start at age 45, and sometimes people put that on the back burner because they now have myeloma, but we've found quite a few colon cancers in our patients who'd never had sought health care for a while. They were considered healthy, so they never got a colonoscopy. So this is something that can be treated as well as the myeloma. And antiemetics as well with patients before selenexor and proteasome inhibitors. On this slide here, you can see the neurologic effects, such as peripheral neuropathy, which is still an ongoing problem for many of our patients. Renal impairment, avoid renal toxic drugs. Don't let your patients take NSAIDs. And if you do, maybe try to stick to like 200 milligrams and check their creatinine because it really can cause some acute kidney injury in patients, especially with active myeloma. And oftentimes they present, right, when they're having back pain and they take their NSAIDs and then their creatinine goes up to four, but that's reversible if you cut it. In terms of disease monitoring, make sure patients know who's monitoring their labs. They may come to a large hospital center, they undergo stem cell transplant as part of the treatment paradigm, and then they go back to their local oncologist. Well, who's monitoring the labs? The SPEP, UPEP, CBC, chem panel on a monthly basis should be evaluated to look for response and look for disease progression. In terms of health maintenance, keep them fit for the next therapy. Encourage and emphasize the importance of healthy eating, good exercise, and survivorship care as well. When we're deciding on therapies for patients at diagnosis or relapse with multiple myeloma, we want to take into consideration things that can shorten their lifespan. The VTE risk, this is the impede VTE score. We use this at my institution, which adds different scores up, such as immunomodulatory drugs, high body mass index, if you've had a pelvic and hip fracture. And we're trying to identify those at risk for blood clots. And if you have a score that's higher than six, you're at high risk for clots. And we should recommend thromboprolaxis. This is an example of one of the tools that are available for download as a practice aid. And if you have your handy dandy smartphone, you can scan your QR code or you can visit the Peerview website. I've also included on this slide the myeloma frailty score calculator. Whether it's at diagnosis or relapse or refractory disease, Find out if your patient's fit or frail, and we should tailor our therapies such as decreased steroid doses and dose reductions for sure. 
what we know through years and years of research, you know, it's so exciting. We had, you know, two drug therapies for many, many years, and now we got into 2010s, three drug therapies at induction, bortezomib, dexamethasone, and lenalidomide, and transplant, and now that is all changing. There's so many drugs in this space. The purpose of this talk is to highlight and emphasize the newer therapies, BCMA and CAR-T, but the patients that are categorized as candidates for that therapy need to have triple-class refractory disease, and what that means is they've failed daratumumab, proteasome inhibitors, and immunomodulatory drugs such as lenalidomide and palmolidomide, thalidomide, whatever mide you want to pick. (laughs) But those patients with triple-class refractory disease, see this purple line? Remember, a line that goes down is bad. (laughs) That's what I learned through my PhD studies, and that this is a Kaplan-Meier curve, (laughs) twinning downwards is bad. And the patients that are non-triple-class refractory, which are still responding to those drug classes, do okay. This is a study published in 2022, ASH, and it shows that we need better therapies for patients in this space. So what about BCMA? Why is it important? The B-cell maturation antigen is expressed on nearly all myeloma cells, and mature B-cells, I should say, and the healthy tissues, it's rarely expressed. So it's a perfect target for the plasma cell. So we're going to be discussing this evening the CAR T-cell therapies, the bispecific T-cell engagers, which have two arms, and it's got a linker on it, usually a CD3, links to the T-cell with a helping hand, makes the cancer cells explode and then the antibody drug conjugates that are still in investigation. But that signaling pathway is perfect, and that's why we have so many new cool therapies which will be discussed. Now, belantamab mafodotin, which is called an ADC, antibody drug conjugate, that was recently, unfortunately, pulled from the market. I have high hopes it's going to come back, but it was granted approval with four prior therapies. These two we'll discuss at length, the idacaptogene viclucel, or idacel, and siltacaptogene autolucel, which is siltacel. These are CAR T-cell therapies. Donna will go over those. And then teclistamab was also FDA-approved with four prior therapies. This is a bispecific antibody, and we're going to discuss teclistamab as well as other super cool innovative agents. So here are our objectives for tonight. Improve your knowledge of current evidence supporting BCMA antibodies and CAR T-cell therapy for myeloma. Enhance your ability to contribute to team strategies using anti-BCMA therapies based on patient and disease risk factors. Equip you with the skills you need to provide patients with education on safety and efficacy of these therapies. And then finally, provide you guidance on practical care aspects with BCMA options, including dosing, adverse events, and management and supportive care. Do you think we could do all that tonight? Yes. Yes, we can. We are so happy to be partnering with Health Tree Foundation for Myeloma. For those of you that don't know, Health Tree is a great resource for our myeloma patients. They are one of our partners tonight. They empower myeloma patients and are accelerating a cure. They have patient education and navigation tools, programs that facilitate patient connections like one-on-one programs uh, where patients that have been through it can connect with others and living real-world experience evidence. So that's that. I'm going to turn it over to Donna Catamaro. Okay, so I want to start off discussing a patient case. 
So we have Robert, who is a 73-year-old gentleman with relapse refractory myeloma. He has a good performance status, but is relapsing after four prior lines of therapy. So he has received daratumumab and prior exposure with an immodulatory agent and a proteasome inhibitor. So now I'm going to ask my colleagues up here, is this patient too old for CAR-T? No. (laughs) (laughs) That's my answer. I, I think that because these agents... And we'll talk about more of the mechanism and such. But I think these agents are well-suited. Like, I feel that with stem cell transplant, it's high dose of melphalan. They're in the hospital. Their counts are wiped out. It takes a while to recover. They lose their hair. It's so archaic, in my opinion. So I have so many people that were not candidates for transplant, didn't want to transplant. And now we're offering CAR T cell therapy. What do you think? Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it really comes down to assessing the frailty of the patient and looking at their fit versus frail rather than age. I think looking at age is also archaic in in this time period. I feel like 73 is not old. No. No, (laughs) The closer I get to 73, I realize it's not that old. It's not old. Um, Now, Robert has had four prior lines of therapy. Should we have been planning for this referral maybe earlier on? What is your opinion, guys? Yeah, so I would generally, like once a patient's had three prior lines of therapy, I would get them into a CAR T-cell referral center so that they can get on the list and we can work on insurance approval and kind of start preparing them to go to CAR T. And you know what? We have studies and we're going to talk about that in a few moments, but now there's evidence to say that these treatments are moving earlier on the lines of therapy and Robert being 73 might be somebody that we would consider for earlier in the context of a clinical trial. So I try to put it out to the community practices. You know, what's the harm in getting a second opinion in a larger center that can provide resources? I mean, clinical trials, some of them are really great because they give you transportation reimbursement. There's some trials, and I'm not like glorifying these or anything. It's not like it's buying you like lavish gifts or anything, (laughs) but they're going to reimburse you for a hotel stay or gas to get back and forth. So offering clinical trials. And so, yes, we could have referred him to the center for CAR-T, but just refer him in general to a larger center that might have more resources. I agree. And then, you know, coming from maybe, I know MD Anderson, you get a lot of referrals, but, you know, how do we answer patients' questions about the CAR-T process, the referrals and toxicities? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's really important to have education materials and organizations such as HealthWell and then IMF have great resources that you can provide to patients. You know, I know in my center, I have packets that we give to our patients and go through the process and make sure that they understand the toxicity that can be associated with it so that they aren't surprised, particularly the caregivers, because I think for the caregivers, it's a little bit scarier than it is for the patient. Right, right. And I know we're going to get ahead of ourselves, Donna, but... We always do. (laughs) I know, but I think one of the problems, think about all the older therapies that now we use all the time, like daratumumab. When it came out in 2015, many of the centers were afraid to give it. It was a long infusion time, worried about infusion reactions. So there was a little bit of uptake for these therapies, but there was also misinformation where you had one person had a bad outcome and then you didn't want to refer them anymore. And so I feel like... Forums like this are so valuable so you as nurses can take the information you learn. Like these therapies aren't actually as scary as we think. There's a lot of steps and a lot of coordination, but we can partner with the community, partner with the inpatient, and hopefully the patients will get better outcomes. Right. And just to that point, 
I'm in New York City, we had patients coming from Maine because places, their local communities were scared to give daratumumab, but now it's very standard. So it's in the water. It's in the water, <laughs> as it should be. <laughs> so summarizing our conversation about Robert, age, we don't really consider age when we're considering who is the appropriate patient for CAR-T therapy. I know it seems like it's a similar pathway for stem cell transplant, where age is a factor and a lot of insurances do have a cutoff. But for CAR-T, we're really not considering that. And we want to plan. So the key is referral early on. And now we're looking at CAR-T therapies in earlier lines with clinical trials. So as Beth said, you know, that second opinion is very key for patients. And then education. So if I'm coming from a referral center and I'm going to refer my patient to Tiffany at MD Anderson, I don't want to just hand off the patient. I want to educate that patient as I'm a referral center. So education is key. I want to set expectations. I want to give them that, you know, the big picture. So what is that big picture? So if I'm coming from a referral center, how am I going to explain this to a patient? So, you know, the big picture, we're we're taking the patient's T cells, we're re-engineering them with a chimeric antigen receptor that's going to target the BCMA on the myeloma cell. We grow those cells, we infuse those cells, and now that patient has what I like to refer to as a living drug. So their, their immune system is now targeting the myeloma cells. But let's zoom in a little bit. So leukophoresis. So this is in the same similar fashion how we collect stem cells. However, with T cells, when we're collecting T cells, there's no prep to it. So we're not giving growth factors or chemo prior to collection. We're putting the patient on the machine. We're collecting their T cells. And then we're shipping them off to be manufactured. So... You know, the expectation is that the turnaround time for manufacturing is 28 days. However, in real life, it's more like six to eight weeks, and I think we've both experienced that. So we have to keep in mind we don't want the disease to rapidly progress while we're waiting for these cells. So bridging therapy between the leukophoresis and the CAR-T infusion is key for myeloma patients. So the majority of patients are going to get some type of treatment to hold them over until their CAR-T infusion. And they'll stay on that bridging chemotherapy, but the goal, again, is to keep the disease stable. We'll discontinue it two weeks out from lymphodepleting chemotherapy, and that consists of fludarabine and cyclophosphamide. And they'll get that starting five days prior to the cell infusion, And the goal of that chemotherapy is to kill off the patient's T cells to make room for the new CAR T cells. So at that time, and I'll say the majority of CAR T infusions at this point are taking place in an inpatient setting. However, there is opportunity to do CAR T infusions as an outpatient because with our two products, CRS or cytokine release syndrome is predictable. The timing is predictable. So I think we might move into more giving CAR-T infusions as an outpatient. You know, per the labels, it says a seven-day admission. From my experience, we're holding patients two weeks in the hospital as we're managing CRS and the the cytopenias. What has your experience been? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit more in detail, but I think uh, just, just take a step back 
think about Robert. He had four prior lines of therapy. You know, does he have time to wait for something like this, right? And how do we select the bridging therapy? You know, I think we're using a lot of drugs like Selinexor as an oral mm-hmm. therapy with bortezomib. But sometimes we need a little bit more aggressive therapy because we're saying he failed daratumumab and a proteasome inhibitor and an immunomodulatory drug or whatever. But um, So that's the, the bridging discussion. And then as far as the hospital admission, I think we're about the same, you know, and so patients have to leave their dog at home. (laughs) They can't bring their cat to the hospital. They have to find somebody to help out. So you really need a caregiver for this and, and it can be very stressful. So those discussions are important, but also one other important thing, you just get this and then you're observed. So whereas a lot of therapies, we go, 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 maintenance this, maintenance that, you get your CAR T-cell. And like Donna said, it's a living therapy and that will continue to hopefully, I say like little Miss Pac-Man in the video game, continually eat away your bad cancer cells. And so we can, that's your therapy. So, but yeah, they stay in the hospital quite a, quite a long time, especially of complications. Tiffany? Yeah, similar. We do have some patients who are receiving Siltacel who will receive their infusion of CAR T cells outpatient, and then we admit them just because there's a delay with Siltacel with the CRS that Donna will be talking about. But otherwise, yeah, I would say that the patients are generally in for about, you know, two weeks. Right. And why is that important? Because that, that first two weeks, we're managing patients for cytokine release, neurotoxicity, cytopenias. Once they stabilize with their counts and we've adequately managed the CRS, we ask those patients to make sure that they're close by the CAR-T center for that 30-day period because these patients do get cytopenic. In fact, when we look further out after 30 days, we do see prolonged cytopenia. So even though it's a one-and-done, I have patients frequently coming in because I'm trying to manage these cytopenias infection, right? So these hypogammaglobulinemia, say that three times fast. <laughs> Five times fast. <laughs> Their IgG levels drop, drop rapidly. Yeah, so like 100. Mm-hmm. So at our institution, we start IVIG during lymphodepleting yep. chemotherapy because it's going to drop. And that puts them at higher risk for infections, which is, we already, as Beth discussed, these patients are already immunocompromised because of their disease. Now we're adding added risk to it. And I've seen patients get serious infections. And we really, part of that management, and this is when patients are coming back to you in the community, the referral centers, how are we managing prophylaxis? So patients will stay on antivirals. You know, we monitor their CD4 counts, you know, for that first year because they're at higher risk and they're at higher risk for COVID. They're still, if they do get COVID infection, we're seeing that they're still shedding the disease. I have a question. Oh, do you yes. check hepatitis B serologies, hepatitis C, before you start with prior. CAR-T? Yeah, prior. Mm-hmm. So similar work up to, again, we, we compare CAR-T to stem cell transplant, but still, you know, they still have different pathways. Yeah. What's your been experience with infection? Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, management of the long-term infection risk is really important. We do IVIG, we do the PJP prophylaxis, and just staying on top of it, monitoring CMV titers to make sure that they're not developing CMV. And so I think those are really key as far as when you're monitoring a patient post-CAR-T. And I like how you said, Donnie, you give people a little bit of an instruction sheet that when they go back to the community, you know, make sure you know who's monitoring what and your lab 
labs and do you do re-immunizations like with yes. um, yeah so like yes. stem cell transplant we're re-immunizing these folks and we used to check titers and then give the immunizations but then they were always low yeah, so, so we, we just, just give giving, them giving yeah the and there's a schedule that's uh, published by the ASTCT yes and we follow those guidelines with immunization again I really do want to stress that infection prevention is key and these are the patients going to be coming into your centers so of course, like the, the CAR-T journey, patient is central, but the nurse, we play such a key role. And we really shepherd the patient through the CAR-T journey. And it's a very multidisciplinary... <laughs> a lot um, of little circles. There's a lot of patients, or a lot of disciplines touching that patient throughout the process. And you can see here, like from intake referral all the way to, you know, back in the community, what one thing do you see in common? The nurse plays a vital role and we, there's many touch points. But as nurses, you know, I said we shepherd the patient through the journey, but we also act as key communicators. I'm communicating with my infectious disease colleagues, my neuro colleagues, you know, to help manage if I have neurotoxicity, infections. Like if a patient does have delayed complications, I have to make that referral to the ED. So, and we're really the linker between the patient and all these multidisciplinary teams. So the NCCN guidelines for a late relapse, so we do after four prior lines of therapy, and again, including an anti-CD38 monoclonal antibody, a proteasome inhibitor, and a, mono, a modulatory agent, you know, CAR-T is indicated for these patients. So we're lucky that we have two products that we can offer patients. So the first CAR-T product that was approved in multiple myeloma was Idacel, and as you can see the structure here. And the pivotal clinical trial, KARMA, which led to the FDA approval, was looking at patients with relapsed refractory myeloma with three prior lines of therapy. And we saw that these patients achieved an overall response rate of 73%, of which 33% of patients achieved a stringent, like a, a complete remission. And those patients who achieved a complete remission had 20 months progression-free survival. So as we see, we're always used to that myeloma diagram where later lines of therapy, it's hard to get patients into deep remissions and durable. We're seeing with these therapies that we can get durable, deep remissions. I was, we were just talking a little bit ago about patients that you had, they went through this therapy, that therapy, and then the remission time at the shortens. Yep. And then now, like, I've had patients that are like a couple years out after they were relapsing, relapsing. We have to change that graph. <laughs> yeah, we have to change our graph. And so I, I like this study because it looks at real-world experience with Idacel CAR-T. We know that clinical trials, we, we enroll the healthiest of sick patients. So how does that translate into real-world? So once a drug is approved, it's our Hail Mary. We throw everyone on it. So real-world data, 75% of patients wouldn't have met eligibility on the clinical trials, and we actually see that patients did better in real-world setting, you know, with an overall response rate of 84%. So drugs are always approved in the later lines, but we strive to get them further up front. So CARMA-3 trial was looking at patients with two to four prior lines of therapy, so not as heavily pretreated. Um, and these patients, again, had to be exposed to uh, daratumumab, a proteasome inhibitor, and a modulatory agent. So this data was just released last month, um, showed a median progression-free survival of over 13 months versus a little over four months with standard of care regimens. And the overall response rate was 71% versus 42% 
again, in that standard of care regimen. So just want to take a step back. Like, what has your experience been with IDSL in the real world experience? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's not everybody is a candidate for clinical trials. Like, so a lot of my patients don't have good platelets. They don't have good hemoglobin. They don't have good kidney function. And so those patients were not included in the clinical trials for any of the BCMAs, really, the CAR-T and Mm -hmm. such. And so I think it takes a lot more supportive care on behalf of the nurse and the healthcare team. They haven't done too badly, but we are using a lot more like GCSF white cell growth factor. Like if they're in the hospital, instead of giving like Neupogen, we'll give GCSF until the ANC goes over 500. We'll be a little bit more aggressive with levofloxacin prophylaxis for um, the ANC less than 500 and really kind of keep close eye on those patients in the immediate post-following period, but they've done okay. No, I mean, I think the one thing that's been really nice with seeing the real world experience is getting to see these patients who've been on chronic therapy for 10 years be off therapy. And I think that is really like remarkable for me. I've been doing myeloma for almost 19 years and that haven't seen that, right? And so it's been an exciting time. So when we look at the safety profile of IDSL, we say that the majority of patients did experience cytokine release, but the majority were lower grades, grades one and two. Median time of onset of CRS is one day. So this is what distinguishes IDSL. ICANs are a neurotoxicity, 18%, but again, limited to grade one and two. I do want to point out and highlight infections because, again, that is a major concern of mine. 69% of patients had infection, 22% a higher grade. And grade three, four, those are, that's when I'm hospitalizing someone for an infection. So really be mindful. And then again, we do see a significant number of patients with prolonged cytopenias, neutropenia, thrombocytopenia. Siltacel is another CAR-T construct that is FDA-approved in multiple myeloma. What differentiates Siltacel is that it has two BCMA-binding domains. And CARTITUDE-1 was the FDA pivotal trial, which led to FDA approval. And it was in later lines, so patients had to have at least three prior lines of therapy and, again, exposed to the three classes. And we see with this trial, overall response rate was 98% and of which 83% of patients had a stringent CR. That's amazing. It's amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Unheard of in in myeloma. So again, we want to look at, can we use these therapies earlier on? So CARTITUDE 4, looking at Siltacel with at least one prior line of therapy. So one to three prior lines of therapy. So new data that will be presented at an upcoming conference within the next month and a half did show substantial decrease in risk of disease progression. So we're really excited to hear this data because we can't wait to see it. (laughs) I'm sitting on the edge of my seat. So again, majority of patients, 95% experienced cytokine release. Again, mainly limited to grade one and two. Here's what is different. Median time of onset, seven days. So this is later, and this allows for maybe the potential of giving this as an outpatient and then later admitting them for management of CRS. We did see a little higher incidence in neurotoxicity, 21%. And again, infections and prolonged cytopenias. With Siltacel, we did see some delayed neurotoxicity. So this is key when we discuss toxicities with patients, especially with Silta cell neurotoxicity. We talk to patients about not driving for eight weeks 
post their CAR T therapy. So, and these might be patients that are back in the community setting that we have to continuously monitor for our patients. So back to Robert. So let's change his scenario a little bit different. So now he's being referred to, let's say, Tiffany Center at MD Anderson. So the, refer- the referral process is in place. We're prepping him to travel to the center for IDASL. So what are the expectations? What should we make clear to Robert about CRS? Yeah, I mean, I basically tell all my patients that they will develop CRS. I mean, almost guaranteed that they're going to develop CRS, but that it's manageable, that they'll be monitored for it, and that we'll do early intervention, right? So that they're aware and they're not surprised by it. And I think it's also important to really make sure that the caregiver understands that, because I think when you're in the midst of like having fevers and some difficulty breathing, you're not, you're just trying to get through it, right? And the caregiver is going to be concerned about it. So I think it's really important to set those expectations with patients. Yeah, they're going through so much. Like they've been through four lines of therapy. They're thinking, oh my gosh, I got to go back in the hospital. I haven't been in the hospital since my stem cell transplant. That must mean I'm not doing well. So setting expectations is super important. I like to tell patients, like when I'm talking about cytokine release syndrome, I tell them it's like, you know, you get a flu shot, you get a little bit of flu-like symptoms, you don't feel bad. Well, it's kind of like way worse. (laughs) So you can get a fever. You might be able, a little blood pressure might drop. You might have shortness of breath. And so there's the different grades and the nurses will take a good look at you. They're going to watch your vital signs every eight hours. We're going to have you write your name backwards. You'll write the same sentence over and over again. You're going to count backwards to look for the neurotoxicity. So we have methods to to check how you're doing. We have tools in our toolbox. Donna hates it when I say that. We have tools in our toolbox to assess how you're doing and intervene, like with tocilizumab, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And how do you explain, like, the supportive care measures to measure or to support the patient through neurotoxicity and, and CRS? Yeah, I mean, I really go through kind of the steps that the nurses will be monitoring, explain why they're going to be asking them all these questions to the point that they're sick and tired of being asked the same questions all the time. And also what will, how we will be monitoring them and managing if they would develop neurotoxicity or CRS. And I think that's really key. We do place patients on anti-seizure medications prior to starting and then making sure that they understand that the sentence that they need to write, I tell them that they should write the same sentence all the time. Although some of our patients- I love my wife. I love are my like, wife. <laughs> no, I don't want to do the same sentence every time. And I'm like, okay, now we're going to be a defiant, but okay. Um, <laughs> so I think you. <laughs> so those things are really important for patients to understand. Right. And then how do you discuss bridging with them? Ooh, that's tough. I think we have to take into account what treatments did patients have before, what worked, what didn't work, what kind of side effects do they have. And we try to select the bridging therapy that's going to be just enough to keep their disease under control that they might not have seen before. I use the word selenexor because although it's approved, it's an oral pill that's approved for one to three prior lines of therapies. In our practice, we tend to go through the three classes of drugs, and then we'll go a little bit more into the selenexor just because there's some evidence about CAR T-cell fitness and how it can enhance the T-cell fitness and it's not going to be myelosuppressive and they can generally get one and a half cycles or that four to six weeks in before we have to stop the therapy and do the lymphodepletion and get the the cells back. 
So I really feel like that's a good therapy. We do sometimes do that VTD pace if they're rapidly progressing some of the old chemo. But in our retrospective analysis, patients did not do very well, mostly because it was pretty toxic. Then they got beat up and then they're going into the CAR-T. We didn't have as much availability for CAR-T selection. And now, fortunately, where we had 25% of patients went on to hospice while sitting and waiting on a list for a CAR T cell slot. Now we have lots of availability, thankfully, for Janssen and BMS have opened up that Those window. Slots, yeah. The slot. So if Donna doesn't use her slot for CAR T, I it. can go into the computer and take that slot for my patient. And that's, again, another reason why early referral is key. Yeah. To get the to patient get in, on the list. financial clearance. These are all good points. But again, to quote you about your flu shot, but (laughs) worse, worse. (laughs) you know, how we explain CRS. And again, I'll talk about the the signs and symptoms of CRS, but really explaining that to the patient and that it's manageable. We we intervene early with drugs such as tocilizumab. You know, neurotoxicity is rare, but self-limiting. We can manage it. And then we want to explain why patients, give them the rationale of why we need to bridge patients and actually Bridging actually can reduce that neurotoxicity. So again, just more rationale that we, why we want to bridge patients. A great program from HealthTree is HealthTree Coach. So if I have a patient who wants to talk to another patient who underwent CAR-T therapy, this program, you know, pairs up the patients and they can talk about it. So I really love this and the QR code is on the corner there, but it's, you'll have that in your, your packet and it's available for download. So just some general principles about CAR-T therapy. You'll notice that both Idacel and Siltacel have a dose range, and this is all going to be dependent on manufacturing. But just some key points. I'm going to stress again, early referral is really key because we have financial clearance and slot availability. We want to avoid prophylaxis steroids because we don't want to damper the effect of CAR-T. However, if someone is experiencing neurotoxicity or cytokine release, we can manage with steroids, but we don't want to give it as prophylaxis. Lymphodepleting chemotherapy is, of course, part of the journey, making room for those new CAR-T cells. Just like any blood product, we're going to premedicate our patients because we also want to avoid a blood product a reaction, infusion reaction. We monitor our patients frequently for CRS. Institutional guidelines will vary, but Q4 hours. And then we're assessing neurofunction maybe twice a day. To get CAR-T therapy, these institutions need to be part of a REMS program, so a really certified CAR-T center. So just some take-home messages of, of CRS. The hallmark sign of CRS is fever. So patients will typically present with fever. It can progress to hypotension, hypoxia. I know in my institution we are aggressive with managing CRS and we'll intervene right when we see a patient have fever. We'll give them the tocilizumab in conjunction while working a patient up for infection because you never want to assume that the patient is not having an infection. And then with neurotoxicity, the pathophysiology of neurotoxicity is still unclear. But as I mentioned before, high disease burden is is a risk factor, and that's why bridging is so important to get that disease under control. And it can happen conjunctively with CRS, or it can happen as an isolated event. And I know, Tiffany, you were saying that you start patients on medications for seizure prophylaxis, and we can manage usually neurotoxicity with steroids. 
I'm going to end my section here with saying like CAR-T, as you see, is a complex process that requires many disciplines to get that patient through the journey. So again, early referral is key to success. I mean, it's a novel therapy. So with novel therapies come, you know, novel side effects and, you know, they're predictable, they're manageable, and patients do very well on CAR-T. So I'm going to hand it off to Tiffany. Great job, Donna. Thank you. So now we're going to go on to buy specific antibodies. So we're going to take a look at Robert again, but we're going to change his scenario. So he's had four prior lines of therapy, but he's developed some additional comorbidities. He has a performance status of two. His last line of therapy only lasted four months, and now he's rapidly progressing. And so, Beth, can this patient wait for CAR-T? Well, it depends. <laughs> no, so looking at his kidney function, looking at his liver function, we didn't even talk about the transaminitis that can happen with some of these therapies too. So he probably needs a CAR T cell therapy. If I did a bone marrow biopsy, it's likely that he's acquired some high risk features such as deletion 17P or a gain of 1Q, which we sometimes see after they've been treated for a while. So we'd want to stage him, see where he's at with his relapse, and then offer him a therapy. I mentioned before Selenex or Bortezomib. It tends to be very gentle regimen, and maybe he hasn't had Selenex or yet. I use a lot of Carfilzomib, so, you know, sometimes you debulk them, get his name on the list, and say, you know what, maybe in a couple months, if you're in a good remission, we can plan and put you on the list, and then offer you that CAR T-cell therapy. So I think we shouldn't we shouldn't necessarily write it off, but he might also be a candidate for some of these newer bispecifics, which are off the shelf, which you'll talk about, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, Donna, would you consider bispecifics? With this patient who is someone who's rapidly progressing, I would jump to a bispecific because I can get the patient started tomorrow. And I think that's key for someone who is, who's having more than just a biochemical relapse. And you still have to call in the hospital admission. You have I to get know. The approval. <laughs> you have to get the approval for tocilizumab, and then you have to call the inpatient staff. So yes, not tomorrow, but next week. <laughs> next week, yes. And how can we best counsel patients on efficacy and safety expectations with the currently approved by specific options? So I think the data is amazing for a single agent in myeloma, because as we know, we give quads, we give triplets, and we're seeing response rates that we haven't seen before. So, you know, I, I let them know that, and I explain, you know, we're, we're expecting CRS in patients, but we know how to manage it. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think it's important that we provide patients with education on the challenges with getting them through the CAR-T with holding therapy and the collection process and bridging therapy and make the patient understand why they can't wait for CAR-T right now. It's not that it's not you know, it's not that it's off the table. It's just that they're not a candidate right now. We want to make sure that we're providing education on the mechanism of action so that they understand that we're still utilizing their immune system to target the myeloma cells. And then it's really important that they understand the step-up dosing process, which I'm going to talk about, and that they still can have CRS and ICANS, but it's generally milder compared to what we see with CAR-T. And so we're going to focus on now on the BCMA-directed antibody of teclistimab, and then we're going to talk about the ADC, belantamab, mafodontin, very quickly. 
So the DREAM-3 trial was a phase 3 trial where patients were randomized to belantamab mafodotin versus pomalidomide dexamethasone. And unfortunately, it did not meet its primary endpoint, and so it has been withdrawn from the market. However, we all still have patients that are still on yeah. belantamab mafodotin through a special access program. Mm-hmm. Beth and Donna, do you still have patients that are currently on it? I do. Yeah, I think um, it's unfortunate that we lost this drug. Hopefully, it'll be coming back. Mm-hmm. And what was really cool is that you you could give one IV every three weeks over an hour. You didn't have to pre-med and patients tolerated it quite well. And we didn't actually have to give it with anything except a little dexamethasone and you could hold the dose and it still worked, which is kind of where we're thinking with the bi-specifics. Maybe you don't need to keep giving weekly. Maybe you can change the dosing schedule. So in future studies that might be coming to light. So we're going to first talk about teclistamab. So this is the first FDA-approved bispecific therapy. And so how bispecifics work is if you look at the diagram, you can see um, here there is the blue area and then the green area, right? And so the blue area on the antibody is going to bind to BCMA or whatever the target is. And then the green part is going to bind to CD3 that's on the surface of the T-cells. And when that binding happens, it activates T-cells and then subsequently causes lysis of the myeloma cells. Blows them up. And if we look at the overall response rate, now keep in mind this is a single agent drug. 63% response rate with 32% of patients achieving a complete remission. Now think about, if we think about the proteasome inhibitors, the immunomodulatory agents, or monoclonal antibodies as single agents, 30% response rate. We're doubling this, which is remarkable. If we look at the median progression-free survival, it's 11.3 months with the median duration of response of 18.4 months. It does require a step-up dosing schedule, and all the bispecifics require that, although on different days. And so with teclistamab, they will start on day one at 0.06 milligrams per kilogram. This is given as a sub-Q injection. They'll get their first, their next step-up dose on day four, and then they receive their first treatment dose on day seven, and then they receive it once a week thereafter. Now, if they develop CRS on day four or day seven, and we need to hold the subsequent dose, you can go ahead and do that, and you can delay up to seven days. The one thing to keep in mind, though, with teclistamab is if there is a dosing delay of more than 30 days, then you have to go back to the day one step-up dosing level. So that's just a really important point to remember. How are your institutions handling administration of teclistamab? Are your patients being admitted, or are you doing outpatient, or kind of how are you managing that? So at my institution, we give the first dose outpatient, and then they go directly to the inpatient, and we're keeping them inpatient through full dose. We admit our patients, so when we have a patient we identify as a candidate, our institution can have three a week, and so we have to look at the schedule, make sure there's not more than three lymphoma or myeloma patients admitted for chemo that day, and then we get the approval and the authorization, but they are in for nine days in most cases because the REMS program or like the risk evaluation mitigation strategy program says they have to be observed for 48 hours after each step-up dose. So that's why Don is able to give her first dose outpatient and then make sure that that patient's admitted. But I'm sure you make sure there's a bed though, right? Because that's the biggest fear Always. that there's no beds. You know? <laughs> Space is a commodity in New York yeah. City. <laughs> 
And so prior to administering teclistumab, they're going to receive a pre-medication one to three hours before each step-up dose. So they're going to receive dexamethasone, 16 milligrams. They're going to receive diphenhydramine, 50 milligrams, and then acetaminophen, 650 milligrams prior to the administration. So what about safety? So we do see CRS with teclistumab. It's about 72%, although all events were grade one and two, except for one transient grade three. Neurotoxicity is minimal at 3%, and there were no grade three or four, only grade one and two. And there were no treatment discontinuations or dose reductions due to neurotoxicity. So Robert's expressing interest in a clinical trial. He's not sure if he wants to do standard of care. He's maybe thinking about, well, maybe I want to go on a trial. What about other bispecifics? Are there other newer options? And so how would you counsel this patient on trial enrollment, Donna? So, you know, there's benefits to enrolling on a clinical trial. I say it gives patients access to novel therapeutics. Um, Patients... I say, are monitored very closely on a clinical trial. And sometimes, you know, clinical trials do support patients, you know, potentially with hotel stays, transportation to and from the centers. So there, you know, there are opportunities for patients to get great care. And actually, we can, we know that this is working in later lines. We might be able to offer it through a clinical trial in earlier lines. Right. And think about how it's a single agent with 60%. So what about the L-ranatumab studies with the other bispecific in combination with other drugs and moving it earlier lines? And so, you know, not only for good of the society, it might help him, it might not, but he's had a lot of prior therapies, mm-hmm. so it's worth talking about. And then clinician bias, we talk about this all the time. Sometimes I think, I'm not going to want to, he's not going to want to drive, or he's not going to be a good candidate for a therapy for one reason or another. So erase that bias. Just offer clinical trials to everybody. Yeah. Health is a motivating factor. Yeah, health is very motivating yes. for some people. And are there certain tools that you both utilize to help patients with questions about newer therapies? So I think there are a lot of great great resources out there, the International Myeloma Foundation, the Multiple Myeloma Research Foundation. Health uh, Tree has a lot. Health Tree, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, all have great information available for patients and healthcare providers. Yeah, I give out an Understanding Clinical Trials book, which is from the National Institutes of Health, or NIH, and we have them in our little locker in our in our workroom, but we also have them downloadable. So for anybody that's thinking of clinical trials, and I also discuss how to find clinical trials by going to clinicaltrials.gov. So like if you have had lots of prior therapies and you want a new CAR-T or a new bispecific, you can go to clinical trials and type in the name of that drug, and it'll tell you all the institutions that have that drug in your area. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it's really important that patients understand what the different phases of clinical trials are, and so having information available to them, and making sure that they understand that there are many trials available, both as single-agent bispecific or in combinations, and in earlier lines of therapy. And then utilizing patient education tools is also really helpful to provide to patients. HealthTree University actually has a large amount of information that patients can utilize. So they have an online myeloma video curriculum. They have anywhere from basic to more complex myeloma topics. So you have some patients that just want a little bit of information, and then you have other patients that want a ton of information, right? 
They have over 150 myeloma specialists that serve as faculty, and they have discussions with those experts with animated videos to help simplify learning, and also that helps to target different types of learners. So there are many other bispecific antibodies in development. So we have ones that are targeting BCMA, and I'm going to talk about elranatumab and linvoseltamab in a little bit. But we also have non-BCMA targeted therapies such as telquitumab and sevastimab that are currently in clinical trial. So we're going to talk about elranatumab, which is also targets BCMA. And we're going to look at the Magnetism 3 study. And so it was sub-Q administration. And if we look at the overall response rate, it was 61%. Now, mind you, the median number of lines of therapy was 5, and 91% of these patients were triple-class refractory. 90% of patients achieved MRD negativity, and at 12 months, the 12-month progression-free survival was 60%, with the median not being reached. So again, single-agent drug in a heavily pretreated population. If we look at the step-up dosing, again, similar to teclistimab, we're going to have step-up dosing with all of our bispecifics. With elranatumab, they will receive dosing on days one and four, and then once a week thereafter. I mean, we can see that. They also will receive pre-medications with acetaminophen, diphenhydramine, and dexamethasone. The nice thing, the one difference with elranatumab is that at cycle seven, they can go to every other week, which is an advantage for the patient. If we look at CRS, we can see that we know that part of the reason that they, we do this step-up dosing is that it minimizes the CRS incidence. So if we look at the step-up dose one, all grades, 44% of patients experience CRS. When we got to step-up dose two, that went down to 20%. And by step dose three, it was down to 6%. So as patients get each dose, their incidence of CRS gets lower. Is this similar to what you're seeing with bispecifics? I mean, is this what you're seeing with teclistimab, where you aren't seeing as much CRS the more doses that they get? Yes. Yeah, so. yeah, I think that what's nice about it, and this is why we can transi- transition to the community, is after, like for teclistimab, after that third or that step-up dose on day seven, you literally have no risk of CRS. And I've had, you know, I tell patients, you know, rather than the tocilizumab outpatient, I say have some dexamethasone, make sure you have 10 milligrams. And if you get a fever after your step-up dose, after your discharge, then take the dexamethasone and call me. But we've, since the approval, we've had like 34 patients that we've treated since October approval. And I haven't had anybody, I had one person that I think freaked out. (laughs) <laughs> and took the dexamethasone and then told me, but I don't know that it was actually yeah. CRS. All my cases have been during that step-up dose yes. phase. The step yeah. And I mean, the nice thing with elranatumab is there's a lower incidence of CRS, only yes. 44% of patients. So that's also nicer uh, with... Uh, and I like the Q2 month, yeah. the Q2 weeks, weeks after mm-hmm. seventh month, which is yeah. nice instead of weekly. So linvoseltamab is also a BCMA bispecific antibody. 
And so if we look at the Linker MM1 study, it looked at a dose of 200 milligrams. Now, these patients were a little bit more heavily pretreated with a median number of six prior lines of therapy. Again, the majority of patients were triple-class refractory at 90%. Again, excellent response rate, 64%, with 45% of patients achieving a VGPR. And in the Phase two study, 60% of the patients who achieved a CR or better were MRD negative. So think about this. Like, we have this heavily pretreated patient population who's achieving MRD negativity in their later lines of therapy. It's really super exciting in myeloma. I think all of us are really excited about these new therapies. So again, we see a step-up dosing schedule. So linvoseltamab is given IV. And so for week one and two, they're going to get a step-up dose of five and then 25. And then at week three, they'll go to 200 milligrams every week. So once they get to cycle six, actually, they split off into two groups. So those patients who had a VGPR or better went to every four weeks, so only once a month, whereas those patients who had a less than a VGPR went to every two weeks. So again, less time at the infusion therapy center for patients. If we look at CRS, again, it's lower incidence of CRS, only about 44% of patients across all doses, and there are very few grade three events. 37% of patients that developed CRS, about two-thirds of CRS cases were grade one with one transient grade three event, and it occurred most often in a step-up dosing. Based on all the data that we just talked about with the BCMA by specifics, what are your thoughts about the data? I mean, like I said, we haven't seen data like this in myeloma um, so ever, ever. <laughs> and these are game-changing treatments with CAR T with by specifics. Right now, we're using them in later lines of therapy, but we like to use our best drugs first. So I think it's, you know, evolving, changing how we might sequence patients. Right. But as devil's advocate, like look at all these great drugs that have kept these patients, like daratumumab, lenalidomide, pomalidomide, carfilzomib, and all these drugs that we've used for all these years. And I'll feel sad if I don't get to use them because I know the predictable side effects. I mean, I think there's a mixed emotions with these drugs because I worry about the infection complications yeah, long term. That is true. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I think there's a role, there's a home for every drug in myeloma. It I'm certainly pretty sure. is. <laughs> and so now we're going to talk about sequencing BCMA therapies. And so to date, there's some early evidence that kind of can help guide us as far as sequencing. So if we look at CAR-T or belantamab mafodotin prior to a BCMA bispecific, we can see that with teclistamab, 53% of patients responded if they were ADC or CAR-T cell exposed. And we saw similar results with elranatumab at 54%. Again, still excellent response rates for this patient population because remember when we utilize lenalidomide or pomalidomide or carfilzomib or bortezomib, 30% of patients were responding. So we're, they're still doing better than what we had been doing before. If we look at BCMA-targeted treatment prior to CAR-T, we can look at data with siltacel. About 60% of patients responded after having prior BCMA-targeted treatment. So still excellent response rates in this pretreated population. So like Tiffany, you know, the CAR-T cells were a approved first. So like the Ida cell and then the Silta cell. And so then it's like, so which one do you pick? The Ida cell or Silta cell? Now yeah. that we're having availability, what are the thoughts that you have when you are in that 
that seat? Yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, we talk to the patients about both options, talk to them about the side effects. There are some patients that, you know, definitely want one or the other. There are other patients that are like, I don't really know, you pick. We do look at the frailty of the patient. I think sometimes for our patients who are a little bit more frail, Ida cell is a little bit more tolerated, but really it's having that discussion with the patient. Yeah, I agree. Mm -hmm. What about you, Donna? I always like to see how the patient is relapsing. If it's a biochemical, I have time, I can organize. You saw the lengthy process for a CAR-T. You know, that would be my option for the patient. And bridging therapy, there's no set guideline on what we use for bridging therapy. It's what we can use to hold the patient over to the CAR-T therapy. And if they're having a biochemical progression, I feel more comfortable about doing that. Someone who is symptomatic of their relapse, I want to start treatment right away. So I would opt for a bispecific. I yeah. think cycl- cyclophosphamide as a bridging therapy is way underused. Like it's not yeah. one of our triple drug classes. As an alkylating agent, it's been around since the 1950s. And if you give a low dose in combination mm-hmm. with like carfilzomib, patients can do quite well in, in dexamethasone. And that might be a good bridging, mm-hmm. a- yeah. bridging therapy. How, what would you do for a patient with extramedullary disease? Pray. So extramedullary disease, as you know, is like the plasma cells should live in the bone marrow. And when they emancipate themselves from the bone marrow, they can go into like a bone and it could be like an osseous plasmacytoma or it can be out of that space and just kind of floating around. I've seen like nodules in the skin, um, sometimes on PET scan, the soft tissues. And so, but the extramedullary disease, when it escapes the bone marrow, it can be a very bad prognosis. We see them at diagnosis, it's not as bad. I remember we wrote a paper. A, a chapter like 20 years ago and you did the yeah. solitary bone plasma cytoma part. I just remember that. I said yeah. flashback. But <laughs> at the end of the day, they still can be responsive to some mm-hmm. of these therapies like carfilzomib-based therapies, serotubimab-based therapies, and these bispecific yeah, no, I think that that's really exciting. We had a patient who was on a bispecific trial and had a horrible extramedullary disease and responded with a complete metabolic oh, response. Talk about the pet. CNS, Tiffany, the CNS involvement with CAR-T. Should we avoid CAR-T therapy for somebody that has like CNS myeloma? Or is that something we can do? Because they were excluded from clinical trials, right? Yes, they were excluded from clinical trials. I think probably different centers have different thoughts on whether to include CNS disease in their CAR-T and by specific standard of care. I think because of the neurotoxicity yeah. was the big thing, the expansion of the CAR cells and it might go to the CNS. What, do you, what are your thoughts? I have very limited experience because it's, it's not a common occurrence that you have CNS disease. So we far as I, I'm going back because we have not used CAR-T in these patients. We've had a couple patients that we've given bispecific to instead of a CAR-T that have had questionable, and it's MRI findings, this leptomeningeal disease. Sometimes they'll get like numbness mm-hmm. in their chin or in their lips, and that's kind of a sign that they might have plasma cell involvement. Lumbar puncture is how you would diagnose it, yeah. right? So what about beyond BCMA? Are there other targets out there that we can utilize? And so there are actually, so there are two targets that we can use. So one is GPRC5D, say that five times. (laughs) Um, So until quitimab targets that. So GPRC5D is highly expressed on malignant plasma cells. And then we also have FCRH5, which is a surface marker on myeloma cells. And sevastimab targets that. 
And so if we look at telquitumab in the monumental study, they looked at two doses, 0.4 milligrams per kilogram every week versus 0.8 milligrams per kilogram every two weeks. And what they saw is an overall response rate that was similar between the two arms of about 74%. And then the VGPR rate was close to 60%. These patients had a median of six prior lines of therapy. So again, high response rates, heavily pretreated patient population. And then we have sevastimab. So the interesting part with the sevastimab in their study, so sevastimab is given IV, and it's given for a fixed duration. It has high rates of VGPR better after one year of treatment. But in this study, they looked at pretreatment with tozaluzumab prior to receiving sevastimab. And you can see the difference in between the two groups. So the patients who did not receive tocilizumab as pretreatment, the CRS occurred in about 90% of patients. And those who received tocilizumab as pretreatment, it was down to just over a third at 38%. So I think this is really interesting data. And hopefully that's going to guide us in the future to help even mitigate the CRS even more in these patients. And hopefully we'll be able to transition patients receiving bispecifics as outpatient. As far as take-homes on BCMA and non-BCMA, so bispecifics provide an option for patients who have rapidly progressing disease and does not require manufacturing time, right? So I can go to my desk today, place an order, and prepare the patient to get admitted in a week. CRS and ICANs are mainly grades one and two. Patients can experience increased risk of infection, and so they will be placed on PJP prophylaxis, antiviral prophylaxis, and then IVIG for IgG less than 400. And the one thing to remember with IgG is if you have a patient with IgG myeloma, you want to make sure that you're looking at IgG subclass levels, because if you have a patient who has an IgG of 700 and their protein is 0.6, probably the majority of that IgG is not going to be functional IgG, right? So we want to make sure that we're getting the subclass. And then there are non-BCMA targets currently are currently in clinical trials. And then patients with prior BCMA exposure may experience benefit from BCMA targeted by specifics. Mm-hmm. Beth and Donna, do you have any thoughts? No, it's just a very exciting time for myeloma. And I said that five years ago. I said that 10 years ago. <laughs> I'm saying it again. (laughs) Such an exciting time with all these new drugs and the targets. So I think if I can't stress enough, referral to a large center, not only for CAR-T or bispecific evaluation, but for clinical trials in general, we have some other cool studies that are open too. And I'm just going to stress again infection prevention because not only do we see it at the big academic centers, but in the community too. And right. being able to recognize and manage because these patients are, these are not your average pneumonias that these patients are getting. Yeah. Yeah, and I would say that, you know, nurses really are going to be playing a key role in the management of these patients, right? We are doing the assessment and making sure that, you know, that they're not having fevers, that they understand how to take their medications and when to take it. And making sure that the appropriate, you know, if we're monitoring for CMV titers, making sure those are being monitored closely. And so it's... They have a lot of jobs. You're giving those... I know. a lot of jobs, right? Yeah. Nurses are... We wear many hats. You need a raise. Yes. (laughs) For sure. Do you want to dive into some questions? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
So right. yeah, we can dive into. We that. like literally have like forty questions on this <laughs> iPad. How about we pick a couple of them to start with? Okay, are you worried that an alkylating agent for bridging would affect T cell health and give you a poor CAR T product? Well, we would take the CAR T cells out, then give the bridging therapy, and so you're not like dropping the lymphocytes and you're not like damaging the stem cells. It's get the cells out, and then that's the therapy for the four to eight weeks during the manufacturing process. What are your thoughts on yeah. alkylating agents? You said you used to bridge with BDT or Yeah, we BDT would get PACE. It's like, it's bortezomib, cisplatin, etoposide, yeah. stuff that shouldn't work in myeloma. <laughs> they got really cytopenic, high risk, 73% will be readmitted. And so we've modified those therapies. But again, in a retrospective analysis of our patients, they had poorer outcomes. And so we've stopped using paces of bridging therapy and trying to use the less myelosuppressive and the less, less crazy therapies. So Donna, do you want to take the next question? Yep. So what are your thoughts on MRD durability? So my thoughts is that that is what you want to achieve is MRD negativity. Prolonged MRD negativity is gold because we know that patients have better outcomes. And then Tiffany? Do you commonly see cytopenias with bispecifics? And if so, how challenging are they to treat? So we can see cytopenias, but really oftentimes depends on what their counts are going into the bispecific because we're not giving them a lymphodepleting chemotherapy beforehand. So generally they're manageable unless they have a fully packed bone marrow from their myeloma. Just like with any therapy, like if you had a packed bone marrow, the healthy cells can't grow, so you have to clear that out so that... Your garden can grow, right? So I see that at the very immediate and less prolonged. And, you know, I can manage patients that do have some cytopenias on bispecifics with growth factor support. Okay. What's the difference if there is one between neurotoxicity and ICANN? So immune cell effector neurotoxicity is the ICANNs, and it's just the long name of the neurotoxicity. So it's the same thing. It's that sequelae of the high fever, the confusion, and and they kept writing the same sentence over and over again, and now they refuse, like Tiffany's patient, they refuse to write a sentence. (laughs) (laughs) That might be a little defiant or it might be a little bit confused, and so they start to get a little bit more sedated. The risk of the ICANS is higher if you have concurrent CRS, but you can have one but not the other. It's it's a higher chance to have that with CAR T-cell therapy. So for some of our patients that might be a little bit older, a little bit more frail, we might avoid giving a CAR T to those patients and maybe try the bispecific so we can give it weekly. And if they have those symptoms, we can hold the dose and then after a period, give it back. Any other thoughts on that? Did I answer it correctly? Okay, good. So do you see longer-term side effects of CAR-T after the patient has returned from the specialized care center? Well, we saw in the clinical studies that the incidence of prolonging CAR-T cell therapy, the incidence of prolonged neurotoxicity was zero in Ida cell in the clinic, the Karma study, and then in the Silta cell, it was small. Uh, so you usually don't see a lot of prolonged, it, like we talk about not driving for 30 days with the Silta cell because you can still get that. That's the one you can get the neurotoxicity, but I haven't seen it any longer than 30 days. I did have one patient that was hospitalized with a severe infection. Unfortunately, he had had an allo transplant in the past, but I don't know of his confusion. That was like six months after. I don't, I don't think it was neurotoxicity. I think he was septic and then he had hospital-induced psychosis, and that was the cause of it. So I don't know what your thoughts are. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to have that discussion with the caregiver so they know what to be looking for and to do a thorough neurologic exam. And do a sepsis workup, right? Right, exactly. And I know, like, in our center, prior to sending patients out, we do, you know, a full exam, neurologic exam, looking for any Parkinsonian-type symptoms and stuff prior to Mm -hmm. sending them home so we know what their baseline is. And so I think those types of things are important. And then also for that to be communicated to the local oncology. Because we do see some movement disorders Mm -hmm. uh, post-CAR T. Right. Yeah. Donna, what about fludarabine? Take that one. Um, We seem to have it. (laughs) So in New York, they have fludarabine. We don't have space, but we have fludarabine. (laughs) They have little rooms, like 80 square foot rooms. (laughs) So in Cleveland, Ohio, and we keep our fludarabine for our aloes, and we use bendamustine as the lymphodepletion of choice because we're still having shortages. What about your experience? So more recently, we have not had any shortages. Um, a few months yeah, ago, we better. did, and we used bendamustine at a lower dose. Got it. Ooh, how can you help patients who need transportation to a CAR T cell center? So we've talked about resources. So surprisingly, like the American Cancer Society, and there's grants available through different organizations like the the same grants that we get for the oral medications like lenalidomide and pomalidomide and exasimib and such. And so even private insurances can help. We have Medicaid patients in my state that will drive them like 60 miles. They'll get an Uber health and Mm -hmm. drive them back and forth. So just calling that large hospital that might be closest to you, that CAR T-cell center, and see what resources they have. Because we have patient experience programs too, which will help find transportation, help offset the cost of parking. It's not $50 a day like in Manhattan. In Manhattan, $50 a day. In Cleveland, it's $8 a day, but we can still help with that. And so, you know, finding the resources is super important to getting patients what they need. So I had this conversation with you, Tiffany, about Kepra, because I know there's variations in institutions. So can you tell me what you do? Yeah, um, so we start it on when they go into the hospital and continue it for 30 days. So at the time of admission? At the time of admission. Same here. Yeah. And there's a question, how have you managed the operational components of inpatient and outpatient use of BCMA-targeted agents? So at our center, our workflow is, um, so we can admit five to clostimab patients a week right now. And so what happens, we have a whole workflow that we utilize So once we have identified a patient, we have our CAR T-cell coordinators have graciously agreed to help us. So we email them. They create, they get the treatment plan in Epic ready for us. They get the inpatient, outpatient tozaluzumab plan ready for us. And then once we've signed off in the appointment request and we've placed the initial admission orders, then they email our financial clearance center. And I worked with our financial clearance center to expedite our teclistimab patients. So we just put urgent teclistimab on the heading of the email. And then they work on getting the insurance approval. And they get the approval for both the patient admission as well as for drug all at the same time. So that once the patient is admitted, everything is set to go. And we don't have to worry about them showing up for their outpatient day 15 infusion Mm -hmm. and finding out that they're not Yeah, we have... 
same, very similar workflow, but our pharmacists are super helpful in looking for dose interactions and the drug interactions and making sure that they get the Keppra and the antibiotics and the antivirals on board and as well. What's your turnaround time for when you have a patient that you want to start versus um, getting them in? Yeah, so it's about, so we plan for a week. Mm -hmm. So there's really only one insurer in the state of Texas that we have problems with. So as long as it's not Not Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, (laughs) we are good. (laughs) If it is Blue Cross Blue Shield of Texas, they can take up to 14 business days to issue an authorization, although it hasn't gone like that long. It's been like 10 to 12 business days, but yeah. Cool. All right. So maybe one more patient with progressive idiopathic renal insufficiency, thought to be hypertension related for four years now, has IgG kappa of five with slight M protein in urine. Is there a level that suggests renal insufficiency is related to myeloma? Ooh, this is like what I do every day. Monoclonal gammopathy of renal significance is a thing. There are so many different disorders that can target the kidney. So you want to rule out diabetes, uncontrolled hypertension, and work with nephrology, the kidney biopsy. Like they can have like 2% plasma cells in their bone marrow, but maybe they have amyloidosis or maybe they have something impacting the kidney. And so a kidney biopsy is really oftentimes the only time you can identify that. That's my two cents. Yeah, I'd agree. Kidney biopsy. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's just so easy to just order it. So, all right. Well, I think think that's good. I I think many of these we had addressed, the ones that are left on there in one way or another. I think they were submitted before, Mm -hmm. and we tried to integrate it within the discussion. So I think that's it. Thank you so much to my esteemed faculty. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to HealthTree. And thanks all of you. And enjoy the rest of your night. This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, Health Tree Foundation for Multiple Myeloma. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash SJV860. This activity is supported through independent medical education grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated.